Welcome everyone and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today we're joined by Ken Loftus and he's been working in the healthy mind field for 20 years and he only moved to Brisbane five years ago from Ireland, which you might see in his accent sometimes or not. <laughs> uh, he's worked um, with many people under the age of 18 in residential care, in uh, suicide crisis centres and in schools. And he's now founded, very lucky for us who live in Brisbane, the Sunlight Centre only four years ago in South Brisbane. And I'm sure he's got, he's going to tell us all about that today. His favourite um, therapy, he tells us, is uh, CBT, and he loves evolutionary psychology, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about today, I hope. And so welcome, Ken. Thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing your time with everyone. No problem, Selena. Thank you for having me. So I guess... I can, you know, they're, they're going to hear a little bit of a dash of a uh, Canadian accent <laughs> from my mom, and then yeah. uh, as I get more relaxed into the talk, they'll hear more Irish coming through. That seems to be a trend for some reason. So do you want to tell us a little bit about you and where you're from in Ireland and what, how you got to Brizzy? Yeah, sure. I'm from Wicklow in Ireland, just south of Dublin. Um, backpacked in Melbourne, geez, many, many years ago. And then um, came back to Queensland five years ago after doing most of my studies and uh, professional experience around the mental health world uh, in Ireland. But um, moved over here with my wife, who's originally from Queensland. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, so, yeah, I just, um, I guess I'm really much, because the health services work a little different in Ireland. Um, so after my psych degree, I would have then focused on postgrad work in counselling, um, postgraduate diplomas in, in, in CBT then as well. Um, but I know over here, it's quite more um, um, refined and, and regulated for the healthcare system. So I don't think legally I'm allowed to call myself a psychologist because I haven't been registered with the psych people over here. So right. if I do it, I think I get fined $20 and my name gets put up in some psych journal to say I got busted or something. Wow. <laughs> yes. But I understand the need of regulation, of course, because they were still battling between, not battling, but they were still juggling that in Ireland when I left about, I had a really, really um, pinned down um, regulation of counseling because it can go from the very extreme spectrums of very extreme holistic to the very extreme cold end and clinical and you know how do you find that happy medium in the middle so where it's always client focused and clients always come first how do they find that um through paperwork and, and regulation i know it's a difficult journey for the take yes um so i really love the name that you've you have here the sunlight center I can't think of a better name, really. And let's think, can, we, can you talk a little bit about how you came up with that name and, and what your aim is in South Brisbane starting out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, you know, because I worked in crisis in, in different areas in Ireland, um, you know, I, uh, I've seen the applica positive application of a warm, safe, caring environment for people that are in high distress around suicide and self-harm. Um, and I just believed there's a missing gap in the middle between the, you know, calling an ambulance, which we always promote if there's a real emergency in that moment where someone is in that moment of suicidal ideation. Um, and but also the other end where unfortunately they might have to, you know, ring a ring a doctor go to the GP, get the mental health plan, wait for a psychologist to open up when we know there's right now there's heavy wedding lists, et cetera, et cetera. 
and that just puts barriers up i believe so with the sunlight center uh, anyone can self-refer under 18s well with a guardian present uh, adults they just self-refer they do not need a mental health plan um, we never take payment never charge a client um, they get roughly roughly approximately we see that three months of therapy is roughly enough on average for someone to move from that crisis into recovery uh, however if another critical incident comes up in their life and and you know, all the therapist has to do is ring me up to the clinical director, that's me, and say, look, I think we need to extend them five or 10 sessions, whatever, no problem. Or everything goes great for the first several weeks, they move on, but then something else goes on for their client, they ring us again six months later, we get them back in, um, hopefully with the same therapist, that'd be great. Um, but that's the thing too, it's face-to-face, -face, sitting there in a warm therapeutic environment. However, the therapist is using solution focus and research evidence-based um, therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most researched talk therapy out there and recommended by the World Health Organization. So even though we want to make it warm and, and, and caring and relaxing and confidential, the therapists know what they're doing to make sure we get in from dive into that crisis and, and guide them through to recovery. This leads me to two questions um, about the COVID-19 pandemic and whether you have seen an increase uh, in coming to your centre or re reports. We know that 19 to 25 year olds um, in a publication demonstrate they've been the most impacted by COVID-19. I don't know what your experience is because you're in the under 18s. Um, but I'm interested to know if you're seeing the same thing as what's being reported in the press. Yeah, uh, look, absolutely. And I think we both know from um, the academic world, studies, you know, have their variables and they have, you know, you got to check, you know, where they're looking at, et cetera, because if most of my work in the schools and sunlight are mostly under 18s, yes, that's my focal group. Um, but with the adults, if they've already had an underlying worry, let's say germophobia, um, OCD, um, health anxiety, they're the ones that have been triggered again and, and maybe made even more raw for those adults with COVID-19. Um, I think on a whole, our instinct of wanting to be connected with people was being told, don't do that. Don't connect. Don't be tribal stay away from people, don't hug, don't have that physical contact, which shows releases endorphins in a very safe, consensual way, of course. Uh, you know, so um, we were told by people we automatically nearly listen to, don't follow instinct of being together with people. So I think that really, I, I don't think anyone was kind of untouched by that. I always kind of put a visual in that it's like life in general is like doing a beach obstacle course where there's ups and downs and easy obstacles and harder obstacles. But a COVID-19 was the tide coming in a little. So same obstacles, but now your feet are soaking wet. Now you've got this extra drag to you. That's a parallel running along with your general, normal, everyday mental health concerns. So where people are going, I'm just off today. I don't know what's going on. I'm like, well, pandemic, um, foreign conflict, you know, big change in governments. You know, there's a lot going on that of course gets absorbed by our brain on the unconscious and is processing away while we're trying to deal with the everyday ups and downs that we've been dealing with our, our whole life. Um, an example to even from this morning, I had a parent ring me and they said, look, 
what's what's wrong with my kid? And I mean, I hear that phrase a lot. I'm like, nothing, nothing wrong. Let's start with that one. Um, and they said, look, he's quieter. He seems to be a bit more germaphobic. He doesn't want to touch a hamburger with his hands. Um, and I said, you know what? That means his brain's working really well because he's 10. He has spent a giant developmental stage of his life being told, don't touch that, wash your hands, put hand sanitizer on, everyone wear masks, watch out, we're shutting the schools, watch out, watch out, we're shutting shops, watch out, you got to stay at home and study at home. So his brain is absorbing all this going, holy crap, this, this is serious. Now, when the, when the Queensland government turns around and says, look, guys, we're easing restrictions, a lot of the, most adults can process that okay and go, great, now I can go back touching handles and stuff. But for a, a kid who's eight, nine, and 10, living through a pandemic, being told not to touch stuff by teachers and parents or the guardians, the automatic you know, uh, rule setters for this young person's brain, um, how, when it, how do they know just to turn that off? So I saw that young person today and we did some great downward arrow techniques, which is from CBT and I'm sure, of course, cross therapy, I'm sure everywhere. And just exploring where he was even worried about, um, you know, if a kid had a germ in his mouth and then he talked to him, it could fly out of his mouth, go inside his mouth, poison him, et cetera, you know. But once we wrote it out and got him to process it externally on the whiteboard and him to look at it normalize it he was able to go oh uh, well that i don't really think that's going to happen actually so his automatic instinct of self-preservation and protection and defense it was working amazing however being fed by a two-year pandemic between the ages of eight and ten so that's where we're going to see more we're going to see emerging trends of young people going well, look i've lived two years where this is a reality I'm, I'm the part of the unconscious carrying that reality forward, carrying that, well, I should be worried about X, X Y, and Z and A and B, A, B, and C. Just because someone gets on a, new, um, a media release and says, hey, we're okay now, those minds don't think are in that place to process that as easy. They're going to carry on going, oh, maybe I should be worried. Of course, a lot of parents will look at that and go, oh, what's wrong with my kid? But that, that young person's brain is working really well. It's still in self-preservation. So I think that's the trend we're going to be seeing for adults. Older issues around health, anxiety, germophobia, et cetera, may be peaking up again a little. But for younger people who are experiencing develop, develop, uh, developmental stages, coming out of this going, I'm, I've, I'm still should be concerned. So then how do we work with that, I think, moving forward? Yeah, so... This brings us to the next topic, which is the center around your center, which is really what we want to talk about today, because this is a topic that in society, I believe, is um, not talked about very well. Mm. And, um, and I think this might be best if you lead this conversation, because I imagine you have to have these conversations in schools and you probably lead it with the right terminology, because I don't want to be doing that incorrectly. Um, when you talk about, you know, what your center's about, um, I'm not sure how you frame that in a way that, because when you see things in the media, they're always saying, if you, if this triggers you, go to Lifeline and all of these things. So I'm going to let yeah. you lead this conversation about why our society and families don't ever talk about this topic and why we struggle with mm. it. 
And, and you know, it's, it's something I've thought about for, for years in, in my line of work and personal life. And um, I think a lot of it, uh, a, couple of, a, couple of, a couple of areas, you know, I mean, a main reason we naturally steer away from a suicide topic is that it can scare us. Um, as most things do that can ha- harm us, we try to steer away from that. Um, we naturally want to avoid what causes us harm. But also suicide can confuse us because our brains love working with facts and absolutes and everything. But for people and family affected by others that might've completed suicide, I think we all know that's where the least amount of research really is because we may not know the exact reason why a person chose to um, end their life. A lot of the research, a lot of the work, even direct work, we'll even stay away from the word research for a second, the direct work I've been doing for years when I work with these young people and older people in crisis, I, I can't remember any client that said to me, I want to end my life. They want to end a pain. Um, and and they, they want to end a suffering. And that means then it's going to be a subjective situation because we deal with pain and, and suffering in a personal way. Um, years ago, someone said about the, the phrase committing suicide. And they said, well, we try not to say that because it implies it's against the law because especially in Ireland years ago with the canon connection with the Catholic church, they made suicide illegal because if one ended their life according to the Catholic church a long time ago, they might go to purgatory or hell, etc. And so we tried to stay away from the term committing suicide. And it's just about, you know, and there's other terms out there I've heard, you know, people, I, I'll be honest with you, a term I'm not a fan of really is when they say something like they've lost their battle with mental health. Have you ever heard of that yeah, phrase, well, Selena? I think that's what I hear on the television nearly every time. And look, they love their dr- dramatizing and they love, you know, making it, you know, very, very dramatic to get the viewers, et cetera, et cetera. But losing a battle with mental health, I mean, when is it positive to share that anyone's lost anything? Maybe lost weight or something like that. You know, I, I've definitely put on the old um, uh, ISO pounds. I'll still blame that. But to, to, to claim, to talk about someone who's already passed on and say, oh, they lost their fight with mental health. I just don't, I wouldn't phrase it that way. Fighting your mental health, why fight it? We all have it. It's like when I hear the term, hear the term anger management. Why do you want to manage the anger? You want to manage the behavior. You want to manage the exposure to triggers. Anger is fine. Feeling the emotion is fine. But what are we doing with that? Same with our mental health. We all have it. We're not all battling it what we're fighting with or struggling with, with our pain, and, and, and if some people will use the term suffering, is that it's their own subjective life. They're, they're either um, heavy anxiety mood disorders or depression, or they've got some psychiatric disorder. And, and it's just been very overwhelming for their mental health. So much it caused so much pain, they may have chosen an option of ending their life. And, and that's what happens in the mind. It presents the person with an option. Um, it, 
I, I guess not not a not an example or or you know, but the reason our brain might give us an option of ending our life is because it's about ending a suffering and a pain, like I said. In the same way, not the exact same way, I'm trying to be gentle with this too, but if I put my hand on a really hot surface, my brain goes, hold on, that could damage my hand, damage my body, affect my survival. I've got to train this person to pull that hand away from that painful object, from that hot surface. How do I make them do it? Well, they don't like pain. So it's not that we're just feeling it hot. We're then also feeling the pain receptors. And then that makes us withdraw. So we withdraw from a painful stimuli. So the brain interprets and, and reads it. Well, that's hot. That could be damaging. You know, flash pain into the brain to make them remove from. Yeah. It gives us an option to not, you know, to remove that pain. And unfortunately, people can be so overwhelmed by lifelong, um, you know, either physical and or mental. Uh, um, and pain and suffering that the brain goes well here's another option if you end your life you won't feel the pain and that's experience of me working with clients over the last 22 decades where they've said this to me and then we work on the pain we work on what's bringing in the pain triggering the pain we work on their um you know a little bit cbt you know these core beliefs are working on how they subjectively and see what's happening in their life that causes their pain. If we can reduce and change that programming in that computer brain of their perception of what's happening, it could lower that pain. And then the, it lowers the even the urge to end that pain, work through it. You know, I never offer what we call fix-it responses of, Oh, you'll be you'll 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 be better. You'll be you'll be happy because people come to me with some of the worst things that have happened in their lives. They'll always feel crappy about those events if they think about those events. So we're not going to be happy thinking about a traumatic event. What we need to do is see how do we manage it to get through it and past it, so we can get into other aspects of our life that bring in and trigger happiness, enjoyment, and pleasure. More healthier and happier, uh, healthier and helpful emotions and thoughts. Um, so I'm going, I'm kind of, I'm kind of keep going here, Selena, a little. And I'll, well, I, I'll, I think I'll, this I'll, is, this is really important because this is the bit that most parents, students, or our audience will be wondering about. And because, um, you know, obviously we want to do everything we can for people in this situation to have somewhere to immediately reach to, because that's what you're saying. That's the gap because they need mm. it. So yeah, they need some, somewhere safe to sit and to have it normalized in front of them that what they're thinking of isn't crazy, isn't wrong and isn't bad. So a lot of my workshops and a lot of the work I've been focusing on, I, I bring up a thing called toxic terms and toxic words. And I say, look, in my, in my work, I, I rarely use the words good and bad or right or wrong because they're judgmental terms and subjective and personal. So when a client sits down and says, oh, I had a bad thought, I try to work with that and say, you know what? It's not that the thought is bad, it's a thought. Now, what does it bring up inside? 
well, I feel really sad when I think about, you know, topic A. Okay. Why do you think you dwell on it? And we work around it. But I try not to go, well, what's a good thought then? Because if a brain, logically, and our brains work with logic, if I'm able to have a good thought, it means I can have a bad thought. That means they're sitting with me, having a lovely 50 minutes, good thoughts everywhere. They go home, it's 1 a.m., they can't sleep, and the brain goes, well, here are the bad thoughts then. <laughs> and that self-judgment attacks. However, eliminate both good and bad, and instead, I try to say, look, is this thought helping you? Is it healthy for you? Is it benefiting you? Is what you're consciously focusing on in that moment helping you? Well, no, because afterwards I feel really drained and sad. And everything. Okay, what could be something that could be a bit more healthier to focus on? And we work on that collaboratively. Um, so we, we are identifying and normalizing that pain is, is, is real and it happens. No matter what their individual perception of the event is, that's the important. And we work on that with them. So they're always the expert of themselves. Uh, any of my clients is the expert of themselves. And I'm just the guide to bring in the psychoeducation, bring in um, these, this experience to sit with them and maybe offer them other alternative work to get there. Um, because me just telling them what's a good thought instead, that's not going to work with everyone. Do you know? And you know, people get sick of being told what to do, how to feel, what to think. That can be a very clinical kind of style, if I can kind of throw that in a little. Um, try to make it collaborative and um, use a lot of Socratic questioning. Um, so I might know a, a decent answer for what they're asking. However, what, why should I answer the question? They're just going to either, they're going to go, great, he knows all the answers. I'll just keep coming back all the time. I can't do it myself. I'll have to only ever use a therapist. Or they go, this guy's full of shit. because. You know, it's like with anxiety. The brain believes something might happen catastrophically. And if I go, oh, no, you'll be fine. They might be nodding, but in their head, they're like, well, he's full of whatever. And, you know, they won't come back and then they'll continue to worry. Um, the, and, and as I said, it's, it's, I don't, it's not that I'm moving away from the topic. Suicide, this is all connected because as I said, the, the suicide is that leading to that pain. Um, now, I have worked with people where it's been spontaneous, like men can be. So we know, we talked before, Selena, that, you know, even in Ireland, back in my studies a long time ago, the stats were still the same in Ireland. 75% of all successful suicides were male. Same stats with the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 75% men. And, you know, we were talking about that going, you know, you know what, what's 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 going on with us men? Just talk more. You know, that's like you know. I'm worried. Don't be worried. Great miracle cure. It's, it's not like that. Um, I do feel that somewhere along our timeline of humans, we've confused emotional strength and uh, blended it with physical strength. So go back fifty thousand years. The tribe was needed to be strong for the whole tribe to survive the majority of the tribe to survive. But if I broke my arm and I couldn't throw a spear or pick fruit, that was a weakness which could affect the tribe. It could affect my survival rates and it could affect the tribe's survival rates. So being 
weak. I'm doing the inverted comma rabbit ears here on our webcams, but um, being weak was an issue. Um, it, 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 and in some, you know, maybe more very harsh environments, that could have been someone left behind if the tribe moved on, if they were nomadic or Neanderthalic and they had to keep moving on to different areas. That person could have been left behind if they broke their legs. If, I, if, we, if we spend three men to carry him, we could be attacked. So our instinct says, don't be weak, or it affects our survival. Somewhere along the lines, men, I'm going to just use that blanket statement for a second. I think we've confused, you know, oh, you're crying, you're weak too. But there's no correlation between you can have a tribe of five strong men all with spears and one's having a bit of a cry because they lost their favorite saber-toothed tiger cat, but he can still fight. But he's just having a bit of a cry. So, and look, yes, if they're very overwhelmingly upset, you know, it clouds the cognitions, it clouds their clear thinking, and yes, they might miss with the spear, but so is the dude beside him who's infatuated with one of the cave women next door. She, he's too busy thinking about her and he misses a spear too. So, emotional no matter what emotion it is anything raised to a heightened stage clouds the cognition um somewhere along the line like i said we've mixed up that an emotion is a weakness yeah so that means my instinct says don't don't share don't tell i don't know in your research or readings over you know centuries when 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 did it start that men weren't meant to cry do you think how far back does that go uh, I, my only educated guess is the moment when a, God, a, a man or a woman, but I'm guessing a man, unfortunately, with some of the kind of, you know, naturally, you know, let's go back caveman stuff, realized they weren't that strong, but wanted the top mates and wanted the top food and wanted the top cave. That's when that person started saying stuff like, actually, um, I think the sun is a god. What? Who said that? The guy that can't throw a spear. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's through anthropology, to be honest. You know, not anthropology. That that little step where it changed from the strongest was the chief to, hey, who's this witch doctor we're talking to? Well, he controls the rain, but it didn't rain last season. That's because he said someone didn't believe him. Oh, that's that's quite convenient. Somewhere along the line, this big, giant, silly brain of ours grew a bigger extra cortex on it and started overthinking. <laughs> you know, let's perceive time. Let's perceive everything. Let's perceive death. And that's really when the mental health started, you know, crashing. And um, But that one little sneaky person that's able to go, I want all that what he has, but I haven't got the strength to fight him. I've got to use my wits to win him. Then they were able to kind of use more of a mental warfare that's where, like, geez, bullying comes in where I see it in, in the schools. The grade eight and grade nine, they're moving from childhood to young adulthood, which enters them into the young caveman style and young cave person style, where they go, look, I can't go up and just, you know, punch this guy. I know. I'll break him down emotionally. That means he's down here and I'm up here and I'm the chief. And if I get all that positive accolade and all that positive reaffirmation, I'm the chief, I'll get the best girlfriend, I'll get attention. That means I'm I'm winning. And just that natural urge of competitiveness kicks in. And I see it, you know, and it's it's how do we change that two point odd million years of, of, of evolution of that if 
if I'm the strongest and I'm the chief, I get the extra food, I can choose my mate, and that means I can pass on my genes successfully and I can survive longer. That drives even people now. Um, so, gosh, I, I don't mean to be going crazy off topic there, but I just feel that there's that moment where we realize with the, uh, I'll do the rabbit ears again, evolved brain, that we realize, well, actually, I, should, I can hurt someone emotionally. So this brings me and, to the Me Too movement and, you know, the women getting the vote back again in the last century. So this where women have developed a lot of intellectual resources over a really long time because of hunter gathering and all sorts of other things if we're talking about evolution. So that's now playing into the to the factors too, potentially. So I don't know how long the suicide rate for men's been higher than for women. Has it been, is it more recent or has it always been like that? Well, like, as I, like, even just a quick little um, check of the, of the, my memory is that was 20 years ago and did my degree. So 20 years ago in Ireland is 75%. And the last stats came out just a year or so ago in Australia and that's 75%. So hasn't really changed in two decades. So uh, I don't know if you listen to, uh, I, I listen to a lot of TED Talks and podcasts, as you can imagine, you probably do too. And we had this discussion offline about how there's a man that stands now who's quite an amazing man on the Golden Gate Bridge going to San Francisco. And that's where a lot of people have mm. suicide in the past. He now stands there to talk to people mm. because what he learnt um, through being a first responder is that people and the people that survived the jump off the bridge they just they showed that like most people that let go want want to come back just after they let go so these are the survivors this is what they report on so I don't know what your experience in that is too in terms of understanding that for the audience to listen to or talk about it's well I'll be honest with you too Selena you know it's um it's actually quite a delicate topic because for any of your listeners that might have lost someone to, to, to suicide, um, they'll, they'll be racking their brains of the whys and the, could, could something have been done different and the thought that there might have been a regret, you know, in the last moment. Um, I don't know if it's comforting to hear. I think a lot of that is... The, car- the clarity of the adrenaline click kicking in and that in the survival instinct of oh, falling. Right. We want to grab. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. one of the case studies I remember working on, one young, one young man tried to take his life, but when he woke up in hospital, first thing he said he thought of was, wow, something else I can't do right. So mm-hmm. definitely case by case. Right. Yeah. I would, I would believe what my experience is the more um, um, spontaneous uh, attempts like a, a guy's broken up his girlfriend got really drunk and said you know to hell with it and jumps but has never had suicide ideation in the past that might be a moment of oh my gosh what the hell am i doing do you know um i believe if someone's more of a chronic mental health sufferer and, and gone through a lot um they're like that case study i said where they wake up going oh my gosh i can't even do that right. you know mm-hmm. um really case by case I think in the heat of, as I said, in the heat of something where the survival instinct kicks in, in that moment with the adrenaline surging, there might be that automatically you know, knee-jerk reaction. <clears throat> However, a little later on, when all that 
subsides that adrenaline if they have survived the jump let's say the situations if it's long term they're still real in their life there's no nothing has been fixed by that adrenaline surge of what they feel has been very painful in their life so that would be the perfect time to get into some long-term therapy that's a perfect time to be able to now let's work through it um <clears throat> excuse me the people that sit in front of me over the years and i say you know what what why are you here sometimes i say when they share their story the stories i've heard sometimes i'm confused and in awe of how they've actually got up in the morning and come in to see this to the session because stories i've heard have just been really really overwhelming and that a human can go through all that i understand the pain they're feeling um and they turn to me sometimes and say look i, I can't do anything i I, 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 I have nothing. And I'm like, but you're sitting in front of me now. Why? You know, it sounds like a very raw question, but sometimes I say, why haven't you done it yet? And that's only if I know them very well and we're in a raw moment, but I want to know the reason they're in front of me now, because even if it's one reason, well, I wouldn't want to do that to my mom. I wouldn't want to do that to anyone, you know, or, or any, or I'm looking forward to this one thing. That's what then we grab and hold on and expand on. When we get a bit of grounding work there, then we explore the major triggers that have been going on. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the longer someone has gone through a suffering or a trauma, the more it has cemented in their brain as a reality. <coughs> Excuse me. The more it has, um, reaching for the water, sorry. The more the brain has cemented a reality of that, that's how life is. Then, as I said, those fixed responses by people that their heart's in the right place but aren't trained will say stuff like, "Oh, you'll be fine." Um, in Ireland, she would be grand, you know. Um, or, "Oh, look, it'll always get better. Things always fade." Or, and all this. And it's funny. I was chatting to a group of um, teachers who were going away at year twelves. And I knew it was going to be an emotional uh, camp. And I said, listen, you got to watch out for these fix-it responses. If a year 12 is crying in front of you and says, I'll never have a real friend, you automatically want to say, oh, sure you will. But guess what? You've just told them they're wrong because they're sharing with you a real belief they have. You just told them they're wrong. So you've added that maybe. And when are they going to have a new friend? When are they going to have? What's their definition of a real friend? You just told them they will. So what do they do? Do they wait six weeks? Do they wait six months? Then they still haven't got it. So I guess even a teacher they trust is wrong. So then it can spiral. So those fix-it responses come from the heart. But actually, if we break it down, they might, and they might do more harm than good in that moment. It's that empathy and listening of, well, that sounds really heavy. Let's explore that more. Let's you know, share more of me. What, what do you mean by that? And you know, and and, and you know, that's that's a therapist's job, exploration. But if you try to fix it quickly, it sometimes they shut down and go, okay, thanks. But really, in their head, they're like, wow. So there really is no, you know, yeah. point, etc. Right. <laughs> so um, let's explore then, because um, very heavy topics for everyone. Um, which is completely understandable, but in terms of how we can make a difference and help 
because I know people will be listening. So what do we do? How do we change these statistics? What are some things? This is because these things are not individual things. They're also societal things and uh, social media, the food we're eating, the way we're losing our village, we're in becoming individuals, we're losing our communities and things like that. So these little things, people blame themselves for the, for what they're feeling, but they're also, these are high level things that are going on. So what, yeah, can, we, and what can we do to, and that's what I love about the Sunlight Centre, being local and opportunistic, way for people to contact you but imagine being able to spray that sunlight into the community mm, so that yeah. because it reminds me a lot of afterlife with ricky gervais this what you just touched on and how yeah his dog you know was the thing that gave him the reason and then then he became yeah. then becoming kind and then helping other people that had cancer etc so that speaks really to what i understand from really loving that series <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, what can um, we do to build our local communities back again, I guess? It's, you know, you know, these questions are asked a lot and, and you know, the common answer is, you know, look out for each other and, and, and don't, don't, don't be, it's not weak to speak and it's okay to, 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 you know, talk and, and share. Um, but I think I'd love to create an awareness, an environment of self-awareness. Um, I think, also for parents to start role modeling, problem solving and being open with their kids to say, look, I don't know the answer here. How do we work on it together? Men of parents that have rang me and said, oh, you know, little Johnny doesn't want to go to school. Oh, why not? Oh, I don't know. Have you asked him? No. <laughs> I think parents worry about the shift in power. Um, a parent has an instinct that they should know it all to teach it all to the little chimp. <laughs> to the little to the little version of us little cave person and and when the when that shift of power happens like when the first time your teenager hacks your modem and changes the password you're like oh crap you know i don't know what i'm doing here and, and this person does a shift in power can scare and and then unfortunately they they mightn't go to the right way and instead they shoot the kid down more instead of working with it um i think we miss a lot with our self-awareness we push aside instincts and emotions flying out from our unconscious i always think of an image of you know you know where this time our consciousness compared to our organic supercomputer brain you know it's been evolving for years that is regulating what we contemplate you know that is regulating our urea and our salt which and our blood and our oxygen levels uh, uh, but also our fears and our deep desires and our deep belief system while we're trying to figure out does navy and black match or clash or you know will i do this or that will i eat this or eat that then when a little bit of that instinct fires through the, from the unconscious of the conscious we don't work with it we either fear it and medicate over it or we fear it and ignore it or we cover it with alcohol or recreational drugs and instead of going hold on a minute what's going on here at the brain you know the little kid I talked about earlier who was worried about a germ going in his mouth. We did a te little technique, downward arrow, explored it, wrote it on the board. And I said, look, next time a kid is like having a bit of a cough around you and you realize that instinct says, look out danger. You go, you know what? Hey, brain. Hey, brain, hold on a minute. We take a breath and we go, brain, um, thanks for warning me. However, the chances of that kid 10 meters away 
coughing a germ that's you know even worse than COVID into my mouth and it goes down then I die a horrible death from it chances of that are pretty small so I'm okay but thank you for the warning so we work with the brain we work with the instinct being fired at us but instead sometimes we just you know avoid it run with it and and and, and just you know it's funny like the amount of times that people are to deal with the anxiety instead of the trigger like i said earlier we we try to manage the anger instead of managing the trigger or the behavior after um what do what does our community do uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you too. You know, I think podcast is a great place to kind of have a little honesty that, it, I, you know, I'm rarely on kind of normal free to air TV, but when the ads pop up of the latest reality show and they promote it by showing the most embarrassing moment of the person, they show us the arguments, they show us the fighting, they show us the belittling. I think reality shows are the modern gladiatorial arenas. We want to watch something terrible happening to someone that isn't us. So our life seems a little better. That's not community focused. Going down to the gladiatorial arena in Rome and, and saying, hey, let's just slaughter a bunch of Catholic Christians because we're not Christians and I haven't eaten today, but at least I'm not that guy. That's what's happening now. Look at that weird guy who's obviously got some issues and they're putting him on big screen TV. And he's going to get slated on social media. Isn't that hilarious? It's not me, though. That's not community focused. That's not tribal strong. That is just glad we're not them. And it's keeping us happy. But it's a fake happiness, I think. If we're able to, you know, you walk past the magazine stand that are all at the end of the Woolies counters and the Coles counters, you know, and it's like, what? Royal has done something horrible now, and it's all lies as well. It's obvious lies. But people want to read how horrible a rich person's life is. Well, I'm not rich. They've got money. Oh, but they're feeling really crap right now. Isn't that great? That's not community focused, and that's not um, tribal strong. So I know it's a bigger picture, but I think if we're able to take that breath and, 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 and pull back a little from that style, it would help create a more more caring, warm connection. Um, with the Sunlight Center, people can easily ring us up either just for figure out what you know, ask what we do, email us if they feel they want to talk about suicide or self harm or concern about a family member. It's a it's a message system at the moment. They leave a message and we get back to them either myself or Samira or Linda, and we'll get in touch with them. And, you know, geez, within a week or two weeks, they're sitting in a chair opposite a therapist. Um, or local community clubs like sports clubs and and um, even sports, sorry, you know, like the more of the bigger sports clubs and stuff like that, they're getting in touch and we're trying to give them free healthy mind workshops. To be honest, I, I wish the Sunlight Center wasn't needed. If in theory, everyone had the tools to work with their own emotional um, regulation and their cognitive processing they had them to catch everything at three out of ten and four out of ten then it wouldn't be hitting the seven out of ten when the brain says hey here's an option and then they call us a crisis I, I think this is a great place to let's now talk about what i like to call the four things so people listening and it's not to be you know belittle anything it's just to talk about this like 
the prevention strategies as a society that we could potentially do by teaching people about how the brain works and to talk about the brain and not mental or crazy, but just specifically about the brain and how it's about fitness. Mm-hmm. Like if do for your body, the brain needs mm-hmm. the same amount of training, doesn't it? I mean, every day you have to do something 100%. to move it and strengthen the connections in the brain. And that's what you talk about when you're talking about a healthy mind. It's the daily things you're making, choices that actually building the strength of the brain. Like I I think a great story. Do you know Wim Hof's story? Uh, He sounds familiar. He's in in, in the Netherlands. He started the Wim Hof method. And uh, that was the ice. Yes, the ice man. (laughs) He's called the Iceman and um, he's now trained lots and lots of people around the world. And this is for the audience. They can go and look him up. He's got great videos, but it's not just about mm-hmm. him. It's He's been scientifically trained. But the story for him that I think people might resonate with on this podcast is that his wife took her life. Um, they had four children, little children. And um, then he was left and he got really, really depressed himself. Um, and so he went around the world looking for 10 or 15 years for solutions, trying everything. And then one day he jumped in an icy lake where he lives in the Netherlands and then his brain cleared for the first time. He could feel that all the thoughts went. And that's where his journey started from, is working out the uh, the power of ice exposure for taking down those, you know, you call it overthinking the supercomputer, it stops the supercomputer and its tracks and he, and they did brain imaging for him. But anyway, it's the story of the power of some simple things. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to be an expert to understand how your brain works necessarily. No. To, you know, that's the beauty of where we are now, isn't it, in terms of Absolutely. understanding the brain. I, I love sharing with anyone that listens just about this organic supercomputer brain because it's got its programming and self-programs and this that also then resonates with the self-compassion especially for the adults to know that look if you have a phobia about this or an anxious about this and this and this somewhere along the way your brain thinks it's doing a good job to protect you you know to talk about how busy those neurons can fire People think there's just one way to think when the brain is doing all these parallel thoughts all at once. A client said to me once, I just want to be happy. And I said, I'm sorry, but that's not a reality because we can't be an emotion. We can't. But if she only hoped to achieve something that's unachievable, she won't get there. And then she'll continue to feel sad. So the knowledge and the psychoeducation and that, you know, the amount of clients that have come in fearful that they're going crazy. And I go, well, hold on. Did you also think like this, this, and this, and this, and this? They're like, how'd you know? I'm like, oh, because you've got a human brain. You're not a robot. You're not a lizard hiding in human skin. You're a human brain. And it's going, working really well because this part of the brain, due to a past trauma here when you were four, it thinks it's still trying to protect you now when you're 44. Yes. However, is it helping you right now? Is that benefiting you now? No. Okay. The other and thing. And sometimes it's, yeah. I want to talk about a recent study just got published last week. They imaged mm-hmm. 100, they imaged, um, I think it was 267 newborn baby brains. And uh, at, in the first week of life, during, while they were asleep, and they demonstrated that each of those brains had um, very similar networks to an adult brain. 
but didn't have self-regulation networks and didn't have other networks. But the one that they that they were differing on, so every brain differed on the attention networks. So they're the ones in the prefrontal cortex that help us do self-regulation. So you actually inherit your brain, not just from your parents, but from evolution is what you're trying to get at there. When you talk about cavemen, you're talking about, hey, guys, we all have elements of these uh, networks we've inherited them too yeah you know what i mean so you don't yeah. even know the brain you inherited necessarily yeah and maybe we do a cross um collaboration with what is it ancestry.com yes you can see what what type of neanderthal came from what area and then what they're going to be specialized in and everything yes. because you know the, the people that evolved in a, like you know maybe like first nations who evolved in a place where bloody anything can probably bite you they probably have a really heightened sense of awareness you know but you get a place where it's a bit more like in ireland ah, i think we just killed all the wolves but <laughs> you know the vikings they had to build to get away from that kind of environment of the cold you know what i mean so maybe their brain was functioning a little different too yes and i mean even just, now i mean you look can look with this is the beauty of being able to see inside the brain using these technologies now mm. that we and mapping the brain, of course. We couldn't do that until really recently, five or ten years mm. in history. And I think the thing that I love about it is seeing the likeness to um, like the viral video, the cats and the cucumbers, where the cat's escaping the cucumber, thinking it's a snake. So we have yeah. exactly that same circuitry yeah. that goes back before humans, even. And and this understanding that that's what's happening and that we have to train it because it's yeah. there, you know, and then there's actually those... a little bit of, um, do you know what Hollywood has created a bit of a perpetual myth that when we get scared, we faint. However, if we all got fainted when we got scared, we all would have been eaten by now. So it's, it's that rush of oxygen to the brain with one of the anxious symptoms where we breathe quick and we feel lightheaded and we've got to sit down a little because once again, we're misinterpreting the brain going, is there danger or not? Now, if we had the self-awareness to say, okay, what are my, so one of my five senses is taking in something that either my caveman brain or my modern brain of learned behavior has, has deemed a, a, a fear. What is it? Now, if we have that heightened awareness, we can get in there before the anxious symptoms take over and we're just a, a blubbering, shaking mess of adrenaline and, and, you know, blood pumping everywhere. Um, you know, especially with the school kids and, and maybe Selene, a bit more research on this one, but the evolutionary psychology, they say, and think, think that they're still kind of, you know, humming and hawing on this one, but I found it fascinating. One of the theories that sometimes we might want to go to the toilet when we're really scared is because we want to get rid of those toxins in case we get attacked or it makes us lighter to run. But one of the interesting theories I remember reading was, I mean, we knew that other creatures have sharp claws and if they scratched our gut and that toxin, if it's still in our body, spread in our body, even if we healed from the wound, that toxicity might kill us. So that's one of the reasons the intestines get all, you know, oh, I need to go to the toilet when we're scared because they, they needed to defecate to make it healthier. Yeah. So also to the, hide too, isn't it? It's a way of hide, hiding. the scent, everything like that. So the term scared, you know, S-less is uh, very, very apt. But even though the terms are there, we keep forgetting that because I have kids coming to me, I get worried I have to go to the toilet all the time. Do you know why? No. Let's talk about it. Let's explain it. 
Let's raise that psychoeducation. Let's raise that self-awareness. So the next time the brain goes, am I going to, you know, soil myself in front of everyone? Chances are zero. Okay, brain. Hey, calm down, mate. I'm all right. Take those deep breaths. Use your diaphragm. Massage those organs and let the intestines calm down a little. But we need that self-awareness to know that if we don't, we just freak out and run. And I think you know yourself, Selena, uh, this is what I read, and I, maybe if I'm wrong, but the best way the brain learns is through removal of a negative stimuli. So the classic example I do around social anxiety, you know, that person that puts their hand on the door of a crowded bar because they want to go in on a Friday night and meet their friends, the brain goes, hold on, what if you walk in there and everyone stares at you? What if then you knock over a drink and everyone stares at you and thinks you're a weirdo and then your friends agree and then no one ever talks to you ever again and you're alone eating by a saber-toothed tiger? You know, oh, geez, if all that happened, it would be horrible. So the brain gives us this burst of anxiety and adrenaline that makes us feel horrible. But as soon as that person lets go of the handle and walks 10 meters away from the pub, they start feeling okay. And it's training the brain is trying to train that person. I won't make you feel horrible until you leave that environment. Then you'll feel, then you'll feel good again. And that trains that brain to do it more and more until all of a sudden they're at home every weekend. But then the comorbid thing kicks in. Now I feel really sad. I'm alone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. But, yeah. So. It's the contextual Pavlovian conditioning, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Around the environment and um, stimulus response. I think that the thing that I've learned the most in my journey of studying the brain over time and for myself personally is that the brain needs to be trained like a muscle mm. and we spend a lot of time worrying about ourselves and everything but everyone basically has the same kind of certain structures in the brain that are so old and if they're not trained they do misbehave mm. and people inherit that circuitry from their families and 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 many generations mm. and so we don't know what circuitry we got for fear each of us <laughs> but we're getting an understanding of it and we do yeah. know that the more trauma or adversity you experience or your families have or poverty, food, that amplifies that, those circuitries, mm. so that you will, you will yourself respond faster than someone else doing the same thing if you haven't experienced mm. this, had the same amount of changes to your brain architecture that yeah. someone else has had. And this do is you believe difference. as well, Selena, that there's some um, nurture to that too because oh, what I find is... nurtures everything. Nurtures the... You know, yeah, I think just look think, at just sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I look. I I actually just think we're a, we're a big bunch of mutated monkeys. To be honest, and you know, you just look at the nature documentaries of the big gorillas or the chimps. And if there's a snake on the ground and a baby chimp wants to play with it, the mom freaks out, so the baby learns to freak out too about the snake, and that's survival. However, now you get a parent who has high anxiety, even if it's social or even unidentified, and they worry, oh, oh, they make those oh, big, you know, gasping noises, and that baby then goes, okay, okay, I'll get scared, I'll get scared. And I believe that's a prerequisite for an anxious kid when they're older. The amount of, the younger I, the kid I get with the higher anxious issue, then it's usually a parent with anxiety. Do you know, yeah. I'm a 17-year-old, not much else there. It's a very identifiable trigger for the anxiety. Maybe not apparent, but if I get a grade five coming in, I'm really heightened anxiety. And I'm terrified about A, B, and C. Oh, what do you tell me about your family? Oh, yeah, mom has it too. Uh, okay. 
you know. Now, the heartbreaking thing is I remember twice now, I'm like, okay, you know what? We can work on this. We've got a few models for this. You know, we'll come in, come in every week. We'll do a bit of work on it. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm already medicated. What? Well, mom's medicated for her anxiety, so she's got me medicated. I know. And they oh. haven't been tested on those young brains, those drugs, on the pharmacist. It really is. that This is the bit that's heart-wrenching to me. It's heart-wrenching yeah. because as someone that studies neuroplasticity and maps brain changes, the one thing I do know is that those drugs can, because those brains are incredibly plastic mm. and they can, these drugs, uh, they don't leave the system. They change the brain too. And we don't know the long-term consequences of all of these things. Yeah. And, and mm. this gets us to this great point that you just raised. Uh, I love, I'm so glad you raised it. And this is the number one thing that really, I think we need to change as a society is to recognize that children are just reflections of adults. Yeah. And so unless the adults are willing to do what we're asking children to do, they will never do it because they literally, we learned to speak human language evolved because of mirror neurons, that neuron, that mirror neuron system in the front part of the brain is so powerful and they mm. mirror, like you just have to try it out. Um, and see just how much they mirror what you're doing because they don't really have the capability yet. They don't have the networks to do this yeah. high-order cognitive thinking yet. So they're yeah. just they're learning the environment through us. Even when I was a lot younger, it would irk me a little when you'd see parents talk normally with their mate about whatever content they wanted. Then their four-year-old would come up, oh, hello, how are you? And as they thought, as long as they changed their tone, the kid didn't hear anything else, you know. I had one mother come in last year. She was very heightened herself, very frustrated with, with the situation. And she shared a little about her own past. And it wasn't a nice one. It was a lot of trauma going through, I think, the foster system, et cetera. But because her son, who was only 10 years old, was acting out a little, she's like, she got so angry. I will make sure he is a good father. I will make sure he is a good husband. I will not have him act angry. I said, but, but you're acting angry. I said, if I got a bowl of M&Ms and spilled them on the floor and got a vacuum cleaner and expected only the blue ones to go in, they all go in. And that's your kid's brain. Your kids take it all in. And it, that's how it forms reality, is perception of it all. How to deal with situations. Oh, I'll use anger. But I told you not to use anger. But you're using anger. So the action is speaking louder than the content, of course. The of course. signified the signified over the signifier. And and that's just driving that learning for that young person. And can we add it's not the parent's fault either because they're doing what they were taught. And so this is yeah. where the, this is where the education, the self-awareness, this is the beauty of knowledge turning the science turning into knowledge, turning into ways to change going forward. It's not a blame game here. Parents no. are and love their children. They're doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have. I, I see that all the time across all yeah. societies. Um, it's not even, of course, but because you don't know what was done to them. You don't know anyone's story. Um, and you yeah. and it takes a long time. Even them, they don't even know their story a lot of the time. <laughs> but don't parents, parents fear one massive thing, being seen as a crap parent. Yes, of course. And so they do so much, even on unconscious levels, to hide or to avert, divert blame or anything, or, you know, see it in a school setting a lot because they don't want to come across like they're doing the wrong thing. And yeah. I tell them the truth. Look, 
I tell the kids the reality. Us parents don't know what we're doing. We just give it a good go. We're yeah. driven by a little bit of instinct. But we're also driven by a societal creation of you have to educate your kid. You have to do all that. And that's not instinct. Well, there is a little bit of instinct of education, of course, to make sure they're not playing with that snake, of course, you know. But there's a lot of societal input, I think, on the na- the nurture side of things where parents have taken it all in. They're like, if I don't do this right, I might be seen as a bad parent. Then I'm judged. And of course, go back to the tribal thing. Bad parents are useless in a tribe. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and so this is where we've got to stop the blame game, don't we? And give people more tools. Um, and yeah, and it's not about it's not about what I what I see is the what I see is really important as a linchpin to change the way we're doing things is to stop doing more things to kids. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids, especially under ten, I feel like the adults need to do be doing more yeah. in the education front to see what they can do for their own brain health because it'll help them across their lifespan. And then that'll have a much easier mirror neuron effect for their children. Rather than always, you know what I mean? We give so many more, like medicating kids, giving them more things to do. I see so many more programs going into schools because we've got to throw because we've got to help the kids get better by five because of all the data on early education and everything. But honestly, we've taken out play for mindfulness yeah. and nature and things like that. And I think that's I think we have to really have a good think about that before it goes too far. Yeah. And a spike in allergies because the parents are avoiding exposing their kids to certain things until they're older. And the body's natural response is no, don't don't let me near that thing. Um, and I get a lot of parents coming in and they share a lot about their kid and they seem upset. And I say, well, what, what are you getting for support? Oh, no, I'm fine. Well, do you go to counseling? Oh, no, I wouldn't go to counseling. But you want your kid to go to counseling. Yeah. You know, I, unfortunately, we can't choose to be that role model, but you naturally are because you're the guardian. You're that authoritative figure where, where the natural uh, teacher or that young person is just absorbing it all in. And if you're able to say, hey, guess what? Sometimes I don't know everything so how do we figure it out together how do we get support together you know that's amazing i think role modeling to know let's educate together you know let's do some of these brain exercises together absolutely. to help ourselves absolutely um, I, I would throw in a healthy dash of self-compassion yes. and i even see self-compassion as scientific even though it's mindfulness based really as i put it through yes. the buddhism is because i sometimes do workshops or even individuals and i say look Thought suppression doesn't really work. And I say, look, I want you to not think about SpongeBob SquarePants. Do not think about SpongeBob SquarePants. And they're like, oh, you know. like the self-compassion is to be able to tell herself, hey, because that's how brains work. You know, if I listen to a song that I haven't heard since an ex-girlfriend and I think about her, that's okay because my brain's doing exactly what it should do. Uh, by association connecting things that's what brains do all the time in a really successful way if i feel sad because i have a, i get a flashback of a person that's passed and i feel sad that's okay too because you know so the more psychoeducation to know how the brain works then you bring in that self-compassion i think to go that's okay that's what we're missing because the blame game doesn't just happen to others it happens internally First. And then that just layers and layers our emotions. So we have our primary emotions come in. And without self-compassion, we get our secondary and tertiary emotions piled on top. 
and now we get now we're overwhelmed. Yeah, I, I'm just so grateful to ha- that you would share all of your expertise and your life journey on this podcast to to go out to people for free. I'm so oh, grateful yeah. that Absolutely. you would do that because this is these topics are not easily accessible like this where people can reach out to us. We're both in Brisbane. Um, you've mm. got the Sunlight Centre. You've got a what's I assume you can share the phone number or we'll put it in the link to yeah the yeah and just 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 Google Sunlight Centre Brisbane or so uh, one three hundred two five nine seven two four. Is is that in reverse on the video here? I think it's in reverse because of cameras. Um, no, it's good. I look info at sunlightcenter.com.au. I mean, it's uh, we're on the socials. It's not super active. We have some group of young hip people that are trying to help us on the socials a little bit. Maybe they'll listen to this. Um, but it's a tough one, right? Because it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. The, I'm getting bombarded with the social media issues working with teenagers and adults. Yes. Yeah. Um, you must have seen you walk through a coffee shop and you'll see that parent on their device with the kids sitting right in front of them. And that parent has symbolized that this piece of plastic is a natural barrier and more important than their young. Um, and then two years later, that parent is giving out to the young person for having one too. So that's, that's it's, another, that's another three know. hour podcast. Well, this is the, um, <laughs> This is the thing about they're putting out this thing called serve and return relationships in terms of you talked about nurturing for the brain development of naught to five, and that's probably the number one best thing you can do, even I'd say naught to 100 myself, um, not just naught to five, but naught to five is very, very powerful for young brain development, and that's called serve and return relationships. So if they're pulling on your, on your leg and they need attention, then you put your phone down immediately and, and look in the eyes of the young person immediately and so then you can say whatever so that's one of the examples and i think there's a great ted talk that the mindaru foundations put out on ted with this young girl who's eight from the gold coast and and they've got a whole platform now where they're raising money because they want people to thrive by five um through these different ideas you're talking about how how do we get nurturing back how do we get paid parental leave and all of these other topics around that subject so yeah um, i think that like you said earlier it's every connection with the nature which was our which was our natural uh, schoolyard um being okay to be out there getting dirty getting a splinter um scuffing the knee um being okay that you can't access social media for an hour or three um i still think queensland's doing okay you know you guys have an amazing playground to get out there Yes. I know places like Ireland and pandemic of lockdown would have surged device use, of course, do you know, yes. because oh, and how do you blame many people if they're in a small little one bedroom apartment with three people and a baby and they can't go anywhere for, for several months. Do you know, I, 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 I was lucky not to have to go through that. So I can't say much about that. Yeah. No, I can't imagine how hard that would have been. Hmm. And I think parents, young parents, have really suffered a lot through the pandemic. But um, yeah. Sarah, um, who's a chief editor of Body Soul magazine, was one of those yeah. parents, and she's really funny describing how she did it. <laughs> um, she's also on the podcast. But um, so, yeah, so these tools, um, 
just for everyone to know, there's the Sunlight Center for people in crisis. There's podcasts you can listen to. There's so many platforms and ways of getting new information now that we never had before in terms of getting your own self-education in these spaces, which I think is really valuable too. So you can look at YouTube, you can look at podcast you know there's so many places now that we didn't have in different modalities because not everyone can yeah. read not not every you know all of these no. things so well it's so a I tough just, one isn't it selena because um you do two extra clicks in youtube and you're hearing from what you think is an expert yes no, that's true and you're taking you can't unhear and unsee what they're sharing and yes that's yeah, true so it's, it's an interesting one um, and I think people can reach out to yourself and myself and even want to fact check it. You know, even if I know people that have gone through the center or people in my past or when I moved from Ireland, I left my clientele there. And I said, look, even if you need a counselor in your own area, send me a few names. I'll go through them. I'll judge the crap out of them to make sure they're professional enough for you. And I'll and I'll and I'll give the thumbs up for someone like use me, use my expertise to find someone that will suit you. Absolutely. I always say when people go through therapy. They're giving you the service. They're, they're, they're providing you a service. So shop around, make sure you connect with them, make sure they have a wealth of experience and they're not just someone that's come from, you know, look, I've, too many people out there, unfortunately, have come from one background. They do a six-month online course and then they put up a sign saying they're a therapist. Right. And the, the issues of re-traumatization, the issues of, you know, just not being able to handle that person, that client in front of you, is dangerous so i suggest always shopping around delve you know have a look at their linkedin or or, or their profiles on the accredited um, sites and make sure they have a nice good experience background and you go to one session you don't get a good vibe say goodbye find someone else yes and that that brings us to all the research published um too out there showing that if if you're not getting some kind of remediation within six months, then you're never going to, too, in certain ways. So that's another thing to be aware of. Yeah, great. great. The, the person you're working with should be able to help you do that. It shouldn't be yeah. that you have to be doing the same problem for your whole life, necessarily. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's tough, you know, as a therapist for so many years, you know, I've, I've been a little professionally frustrated at times where, You'll say, okay, so how's your week? Not great. What did you do? Went over to my parents. Oh, okay. We spent three weeks and several sessions talking about how that's a toxic environment. And you said you might choose to go over and then you chose to go again. And, you know, so there are those tough moments as a therapist when all I can do is offer a lot on a, on a, on a platter and see what they take. Yes. Because the free choice is no forced therapy. Um, it is always a choice of the person in front of me to choose to engage, to to try new things, to come back the next week and go, I don't think I like this. This didn't work. Let's try something else. Excellent. Let's do it. You know, and move forward and then try to get something that works for them. Um, I wonder if you have you ever tried putting someone's hand in a bowl of ice or having an ice bath in your center? Uh, yeah. Well, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. If they want to freeze a little and calm down, their mind sounds great. But then a week later, we got to work on the stuff that originally caused the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so cold yeah. showers on the weekends, midweek, get your homework journal out and start filling out those CBT models that we worked on last week. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to a, a great conclusion. 
And um, so in the podcast link, we'll put all your website and all the connections. And I think you shared with us some great information. And is there anything else you need to tell the audience from the conversation that's really important? Anyone in the Queensland area, Brisbane area, look, reach out about anything, even if you have questions about stuff. Um, we have been trying to provide some even free short little work workshops around the area for small businesses that are going tough parent groups etc sports group reach out about it um you know we 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 are a non-government funded group and we are a registered dgr pbi charity which takes a lot of bloody paperwork to do um there's a lot of not-for-profits out there but only so many charities um so that means if anyone ever thinks they want to do their own fundraiser cycle poker night anything they want to do um let us know we're so happy to help organize that and promote it through our socials as well um so yeah just get in touch and 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 say hello great thank you very much ken and thank you for all the work you're doing for brisbane you're very welcome